Susie. <laughs> After all this time, we're still terrible at starting the show. I know. It's like, I, I look at you. Are you going to go? Am I going to go? Okay, we're just going to go together. <laughs> Episode 303. I think part of the problem is that, like, there's absolutely no difference between how we talk normally and what happens after we push record. Absolutely correct. So there's like this weird, why are we breaking it up with like, hey. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's a but, good point. Welcome to the show, everyone. How are you, welcome. Sarah? I'm doing well. I just uh, gave a nice presentation on uh, sexual abuse uh, and uh, understanding sexual abuse in my class. So, but you know, that was I'm a real feeling, crowd pleaser. Yeah, as that subject always is. You know, it's well, the only time that you, when you get nervous, you can't picture the audience in their underwear <laughs> or naked, at least without Sarah. their consent. Oh my god, that was guttural. Don't oh think god, I didn't that use that funny. joke when I was presenting too. That's a really good joke. Oh, good, Sarah. Thank you. you. It's, it? my, it's my like you know icebreaker, like warm them up with joke. I mean, did they laugh their heads off? It's so funny. I think you know. Yeah, I got to laugh. Pretty good, you know. Thanks, Sarah. That's real good. Thanks, Sue. It's kind of a. (laughs) It's kind of a weirdly good transition because I want to talk so bad about the Michael Jackson documentary. Oh my god, I haven't seen it, Sarah. Sue, tell me everything. What? What's your feeling? I mean, if you haven't watched. I think it's called Leaving Neverland. Yes. Um, I do know that. Good night, Irene. I, Of course I believed all along that he was a child abuser and a pedophile. But it is just different when you watch this four hours of just talking. People sharing their story. That is all it is. And yet I could not turn it off. Oh my god! It was riveting in I have a to terrible watch way. You have to watch oh, it, and yeah. I think it's so important. I think it's essential viewing for everyone because oh my, my sister was saying the same thing that she knew that it was creepy and that he was weird and he was probably doing this stuff, but she really never knew how child abuse can be so seductive oh, and how yes, it doesn't always seem painful, and the child might enjoy the attention and the feeling your body's designed to feel good when someone touches you there and this is exactly what we were saying last yes yes tell me what your sense is i know you haven't seen it but well i understand why that happens yeah so that what happens is anybody who is a a, uh uh perpetrator of these crimes yes they will use the same things like it it plays to the same parts of your brain that the attachment circuitry parts that so the same thing that develops that close relationship between like a mother and a child yeah. is the exact same thing that's being used to um like manipulate these victims or the, these people that that get victimized and what happens is it creates a lot of confusion in the body when like the attachment yes. circuitry is saying this is a person where, that makes you feel safe and that makes you feel secure but then at the same time is abusing you so what that does is that that confusion in your brain suppresses all of the defense circuitry that's supposed to protect you so Mm. they so say you have somebody who hasn't been who isn't a child like say you know it's 
an adult and, you know, they get uh, sexually assaulted because that hasn't happened to you before, because you don't have that attachment and say it's like a stranger that you don't know because you don't have the attachment circuitry, uh, uh, you know, stuff there, you'll be able to utilize more of like the, the defenses and the trauma that happens in your brain looks different. So you can react in a different way if you don't have that attachment. But still, of course, there's that you know, fight, fight, or freeze thing that happens, of course. But when the defense circuitry shuts down, we see those things like tonic immobility and um, collapsed immobility and disassociation. And yes. so kids disassociate, and that's why they don't have memories of it because that part of the prefrontal cortex completely shuts down where all of your logical thinking and your ability to create creative solutions to get out of danger is gone. Well, and if, for these kids, at least, it didn't feel like danger. It doesn't, it felt right. like, wow, I'm really special. And this guy that I worship uh-huh. thinks I'm special too mm-hmm. and that I might grow up to be like him and he's going to help me get there and he loves me and we have a special relationship. Yeah. And oh, he was God. telling them, you know, that they, it's like they were the chosen one. Yeah. And they felt mm. loved and cared for and they got to do all these amazing things and their families were involved and the families were seduced as well in the sense that they believed this man was giving them a special opportunity well and and you can see why prey on on people who are uh, absolutely uh, they know exactly uh, who to target yes oh and i think it's so uh, you know important what you said about you know, sometimes it feels good. And especially with male survivors Mm. that there are physiological and biological. Yes, absolutely. And then they think, am I gay? What does this mean? And so that is really, really confusing. And that's one of the big reasons why, you know, in, in teaching people about this and try to avoid using things like good touch or bad touch, because Mm. it can, things that are, you know, quote unquote bad can feel good to these kids. So calling it safe touch or unsafe touch. And I think a lot of people mistakenly think that sexual abuse of children is maybe painful. If the abuser is good at it, it feels very pleasurable and uh, gentle. And, you know, that is also confusing for these little boys. Sarah, the, the one was seven and my son's about to turn seven. And Sarah, that could be really hard. The, to watch the detail that they provided was jarring but so important because this wasn't just touching and not that that would be okay right. but it was so extreme and unbelievable what they endured oh. at such a young age that i think everyone should see it because yeah. until you hear these guys telling their story it can be like well, Michael's weird and he oh. didn't have a childhood and so he was odd. Well, he was good at what he did and yeah. he manipulated people. Oh, God. It's unbelievable. Man. Are there any... So what uh, symptoms or what things are you seeing now from the... Because I assume that some of them are struggling with the yeah. effects of like PTSD or... Yes. You know, and things. So are you seeing that in these... Well, these two um, survivors denied that it happened for so long and even testified in favor of Jackson at his other trials. 
and said, no, 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 he would never do that. He never did anything like that mm. and believed that, you know, this was a relationship, not abuse. Oh, and then yeah. when they had their own children, <gasps> that's when the memories all came back and everything oh changed. God. The lens through which they saw the abuse Dude. was different then. And they were like, Dude. oh my God, I'm an abuse victim. And this I think that's is, hard for people to understand. That is how it happened. Gosh, it is so crazy. This is mm-hmm. it, this totally mirrors it's everything I was talking about last night. It's crazy. I yeah. mean, yes, absolutely. We were talking about how when new life phases come about, when your children are the age that you were when you were victimized, yes. when uh, you know you get pregnant or you know have a child. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, or even if you have a child and now that child launches and they're like going out into the world, that the idea of them leaving the nest and now you can't protect them or whatever, all those things, any new life change can bring, stir up all these, these memories because our brain does not, because that prefrontal cortex shuts down, our brain just stores these like flashes, these little snapshots of the event that's around the sensation, around the feeling and around the emotion. So we don't even have an understanding of like, you know, any peripheral details or any sort of like timeline or sequence of events, but we do just have these little moments. And if anything in our mind or in our our environment, you know, triggers that, that's when all those feelings come back. Oh God, that's hard. I saw a lot of people online criticizing the parents, which is sort of your gut instinct to be like, you know, why didn't they protect their kids? Um, Especially because he's sleeping in bed with them. You know, their families were giving the stamp of approval. I get it, but I'm very sympathetic towards them as well because they were tricked too. Yeah. And they really bought into the bullshit that, that Michael had done and... And Michael had a lot of enablers and still does. Even when he's dead, his family is still defending him. Yeah. So I'm sympathetic to the children, their parents, everyone that was affected, even though, of course, they made mistakes. And I wouldn't let my kids sleep in a bed with an adult. But, you know, it gets confusing when, like, you're going on tour Mm -hmm. and you're all in hotel rooms anyway and all that stuff. Oh, God. The one he met through the uh, Pepsi commercial... And then took him on tour with them and would take him on stage and he would dance every night on the bad tour. And the other one won a Michael Jackson dance competition at the oh age God. of five or six. Oh, my God. And it's just unbelievable. Yeah, and it, it almost seems like these things are, are oh, gosh, like if, if Michael Jackson were not famous and this was just some guy, say he was like, I don't know, at... CPA, an accountant or something, you know, and he was involved with all these children and, you know, had these, um, you know, programs or whatever to, to win a chance to hang out with me or whatever. We would be like, what the hell is that? (laughs) No. But there's something really enticing. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, oh God. And I just feel like there's, an, uh, I always think that it's just like, like systemic, and that yeah. there's chances that there are more people involved in this than just him, and that we're, you know, turning a blind eye or yeah. 
And that's that part just... of why I think it's essential because, yes, this was an extreme example of a guy who could get yeah. away with it more, but we have a big problem in general culturally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's why bystander intervention is so important mm-hmm. for so many reasons and being able to recognize those signs and being able to have open conversations with kids about that safe touch and unsafe touch. And, oh, God, well, thank that, like, God you people my... are doing the Lord's work. Uh, well, you know what? And I realized that, like, like every single presentation I do, I always ask the audience, like, is this new information or is this something yeah. you guys, like, how, how was this yeah. ever discussed with you? And they go, it wasn't. Oh, so God. this is the first time a lot of people, people don't know about this. People in, and, and last night when I did this presentation for, you know, my program is one of the top programs in all of California, if not the country, for... MFT, um, you know, stuff. And uh, this is the first time they've ever done anything on sexual abuse. Wow. Thank God and you're like, doing it's it It's long now. overdue and now it's, it has to be done, you know. And the, the feedback I got was, we want more information. It should be like a four-hour workshop because you can't even get it. There's so much to talk about. There's so many um, layers to this. Well, one thing we definitely need to talk about is liquid IV and oh, how- gosh, yes. I could use some of that right now. In fact, <laughs> Sarah's thirsty. Yeah. Mix me um, up a batch. <laughs> Liquid IV is this really awesome um, hydration system, let's call it that, where you pour it into your water and it's got really nice flavor. And then it hydrates your body at the two to three times the rate of just drinking water. And it has essential vitamins in it, tastes really great. And here's what it's great for. Uh, cold and flu season, winter travel, just being dehydrated in the winter. When you go to the gym, you can pop one in your gym bag and then pop it into your water when you're done. And we use it all the time. Adam calls it his night drink. Oh I'm like, God, yeah, I'm so going to go get my wine and he'll go get his night drink. His which night is, drink, that's so <laughs> great. He does it with hot water. So it's like, oh, like a tea, really like soothing. All, yeah. And I didn't try this yet, but somebody said they specifically have one that's designed to help you sleep. What? Give me I that haven't right tried now. It. Yeah. I need it. Well, why don't we, we have that in our house IV. considering everybody under this roof has trouble sleeping? <laughs> we love Liquid IV. We know you will too right now. Our listeners get 20% off at liquidiv.com when you use our code BRAIN at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order on Liquid IV's website. Go to liquidiv.com and enter promo code BRAIN to get your savings and start getting better hydration. That's liquidiv.com, promo code BRAIN. Don't wait, get hydrated today. Um, I was laughing when you said cold and flu season because I'm like, uh, I'm pretty sure now that's like every season. <laughs> Why? Like it's all the time. Like there's Do you no, feel now, like that? Yeah, I feel like now, like, I don't know, he's like super bugs that never go away. Like everybody's sick all the time. There's always, it, or maybe it's just my program where we're all like emotionally drained and therefore. <laughs> I have, noticed like, that when I was in grad systems. school too. Okay, maybe it's that. Maybe it's just grad school makes you sick. So drink your <laughs> liquid IV. <laughs> well, you should give everybody in your Yeah, you should get that at orientation. Here's your survival <laughs> kit. Oh, God. I told you when we were in grad school, we used to drink during class, like oh, gosh, whiskey. So and funny. Like, because did you, I don't think you have this, but we our classes were so small that they were just like at a conference table. Yeah. And so then we'd all bring food and booze and oh, things yeah, would get kind of frowned rowdy. upon in the uh, uh, <laughs> therapy field. Why though? Uh, you know, like. Well, I, for like, I don't know, for like a million reasons, but I think... Nobody all, was getting drunk. It was just well, like yeah, social. I know, but, 
Yeah, you can't be like. Don't judge us, Sarah. I'm not at all. I'm jealous. <laughs> um, I have to like, so, show up and do sessions, and can't be all tips when you're tips. You know. Um, by the way, there is all kinds of drama in the Brain Candy Crush right now, and it's oh. cracking me up. Oh, okay. tell me. Well, if you're not. Brain Candy Crush is not run by me or Sarah. Mm -hmm. It's a separate little group of people who listen to the show and like to hang out and talk to each other about whatevs. And it's on Facebook. And obviously any kind of Facebook group is always going to have drama. Yeah. Because people disagree. Well, I don't know since I'm not in any, so. (laughs) Well, I notice Mm -hmm. it like in the beauty groups and then what else is there? Like... Just anything, fashion, yeah. whatever. Yeah. They end up fighting about stuff. And it just cracks me up when it happens in the Brain Candy Crush because then people start ta- like writing to me on social media and not tagging you, by the way, just right. me. I never hear about this. Which bothers me, and I won't respond if you do that. If you only re- write to me, I will ignore the shit out of you <laughs> because it's rude. Yeah. And I don't know what they want me to do. Right. So then they always form this like separate group there's like another there's two different dissenting groups now which cracks me up (laughs) hey you know maybe what that means we're doing something right we got i feel like you know what i support any kind of drama because it's hilarious so what 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 are the what's the what's the subject matter what's the i believe it began because some people get mad when podcasts have ads in them this all happens like quarterly where someone can be like i love television shows have ads in them but (laughs) that's how they make that's how they're on television. So, And 90% of the people will respond with something like you just said. And they're like, oh, they're fine. And they like the products and they do it pretty, you know, seamlessly. Um, but there's always going to be some people that are annoyed by it. And then it ends up being like a fight where someone will defend us. And I just love it so much. <laughs> I shouldn't love it, but I do. Oh, man. You know. God bless them. You can't win, really. I wish I had that kind of time, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I don't, because I'm too busy doing ads. <laughs> Stop it. Okay, okay, okay. I have been on like a documentary, Jag, so let me tell you another one that I saw. Yeah. There is one on Netflix called, well, I don't know what it's called, but it's about Studio 54, and it might be oh, called that. Oh, Suze, I saw that pop up, and I was like, oh, I bet Susie would love this. I didn't I, even watch it, but I just knew. I did love it. I was like, 70s fashion and big hair, she's totally going to be in. Yeah, disco. I love disco music. Yeah. Um, it was really fun to watch, first of all, because of what Sarah's saying, where if you like the 70s or that era or that music, then it's just cool to watch. But I really couldn't... I wanted to get to the bottom of, like, what is the fucking big deal about Studio 54? Because a club is a club. Yeah. Like... Well, I... But this is Don't you feel like there's an upper limit on how good something like that can be? Okay, you have alcohol, uh, you have pretty mm -hmm, people, you have good mm -hmm, music, and mm -hmm. then it's great. But why was that the iconic one? That's what I, I wanted think, to know. Well, do, do you have an, do you have like an answer after watching? I do. It? Oh, <laughs> but you good. can get theorized if you want. Yeah. Well, I, my my get my take on it is you know that was you know how we have social media and we have um, uh, you know like ways where celebrities um, I don't you know like Tao and all those kind of places yeah. and all the the paparazzi like the whole scene yeah. like it's now just so spread out because 
you know, we can track all these people all the time and everybody is on their phone and everybody's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, accessible and everybody has like a social presence. But when that ah, didn't exist, having like one central location, one place where if you were the, you know, Kim Kardashian of your day, you could, you, did, you didn't have yeah. the ability to call up, uh, you know, the, the paparazzi and say, hey, I'm going to be coming out of this restaurant or whatever. So it was mm-hmm. like, this is the spot. If you want to be seen, if you want to be one mm-hmm. of those people, people you go there and you know i think just because there those places were you know few and far between and also like we hear we hear about like you know cele- those kind of spots through i don't know social media and all that yeah, and things, there are more of yeah. them now. now it's like or before it was like how would anybody know about these places you know it's yeah. like you can google it so it's like the one spot and I think yeah. there was a, a switch in New York at the time, right? Where it was like, like something was going on. I mean, I don't know. Do tell me. You watched the documentary. Well, they made a good point, which was something that I didn't think about because I wasn't around back then. But um, they were saying that at the time there were kind of like specialized clubs. So if you were a black person, you might go mm-hmm. to a mm-hmm. particular club. Or if you were a gay person or whatever... But this was all mm. are welcome yes. and encouraged. And the weirder you are, the more fun you're going to have. And nobody will judge you, which was really unusual, apparently. Yeah. Where you could be, you could kiss a man if you're a man and nobody cares. And it was kind of like this utopian but debaucherous <laughs> environment. And did you watch the Ray Romano special yet? Yes, I loved it. Okay. Do you know the funny bit about, well, uh, you have to remember this was before AIDS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whenever somebody begins yeah. their story that way, it's going to be you a You know it's going to be a story. good story. Yeah. Well, that's essentially what it was like with Studio 54. It was like the whole thing is premised on, you have to remember this was before AIDS. But yeah. the part I didn't realize or think of is that it was after birth control. Oh, so it's this sweet spot of like, yeah. let's have some fun. Yeah. Oh, and I yeah. never thought about that little window between birth control and AIDS. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Interesting. So that was fun. Yeah, I recommend oh, it. I love looking at, you got to look at, you know, context. The, the context. Yes. Everything. What's going on in the political world? What's going on in, you know, medicine, even like that. Man, Cool. And you definitely should look and see what's going on in the world of perfume because you want to be smelling good at all times. At any club. At any club or at your house. There's no reason why you can't smell good. And Scentbird is going to help you with that because they allow you to basically try different perfumes and see what you like without having to commit to that giant bottle that'll sit on your nightstand or your vanity forever. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw... I. Put in, I think I told you last time, I plugged in like my favorite is Coco Chanel Mademoiselle. So I wanted to try other ones that were similar. So I got one that's called Toka, I think. And I oh, love yeah. it. I totally Do you know that smell line. that one? Yes. I love it. And so I got to try it without having to buy the big bottle. And so they'll send you, you know, you can choose each month what one you want to try. And um, it's a 30 day supply, but it's it really lasts more than that because. 
you get 120 sprays essentially. Mm. And um, they have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You get 50% off your first first month today. That's only $7.50 for your first fragrance. Go to scentbird.com slash brain candy and use code brain candy for 50% off your first month. Again, that's S-C-E-N-T bird.com slash brain candy for you to try your first perfume or cologne for just $7.50. Sign on, smell amazing. And they also have cologne like men's as well. I didn't want to oh, say you'd, you could get it for your fella if yeah. uh, or yourself if you're yeah, a man. Yeah, I, like, I totally like men's. I am really into men smelling good, and some yeah. people, you know, they they men don't always buy their own, so you got to get it for them. I steal my husband's because I like how his smells on me better. Me too. What's <laughs> with that? And sometimes I walk out the door, and he's like, "We can't. You're wearing that too." And I was like, "Well, I'm sorry. We're what not going to have conflicting scents now." You and is, do you think because we have big dick energy, we smell good mm. with cologne on? Maybe that's it. Maybe it's my BDE. <laughs> I need a cologne that matches. My BDE. That should be their tagline. Yeah. Oh, God, that's so funny. Um, did you hear about that dude in Oregon that got, like, stranded in a snowstorm? No. And for five days. You know how that happens sometimes where people, like, dude. make a wrong turn and then... Yeah, yeah. It happened to my brother once. He was, like, lost in the woods and then it started snowing and the rangers ended up finding him. He got just turned what? around and lost and they didn't find him till like midnight or 1 a.m or something and thank god because he was coming back from climbing and he was wearing shorts and then it like started snowing and it dropped really cold i don't even know how they found him and thank god they did what the heck how did yeah, he get for lost real. like he went back to the car for something and i don't know how he got turned around or something That's happened where so he totally scary. yeah so i couldn't imagine what, and like he was telling me how terrifying that was and what it would be like to be gone for five days in the freezing yeah. cold. Forget he it. Was what happened? He was in his car and he had he was okay in the end because he lived off of Taco Bell fire sauce packets. Oh my <laughs> God. If that ain't an ad for Taco Bell, I don't know what is. Oh my gosh. I'm going to go through the drive-thru and be like, what would you have? What would you like, ma'am? Uh, just a whole bunch of packets of sauce. <laughs> I don't know if <laughs> this polar vortex is coming to California. I need to be prepped. Ready. You got to be prepared. Yeah. Those packets save lives, Sarah. Wow. So yeah. Jeez. And there's some calories in there. He had his dog with him and his dog had to live off them too. Oh gosh. Thank God it wasn't Sigmund. <laughs> I would have been like, just take us. We're 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 just You're we're goners. ready to go. We're goners. I'm not ready well, to deal with the explosive diarrhea he would have from eating those packets. So you could just just nice take us knowing you, segment. Six sad world. Well, th- I did read this morning though that Taco Bell gave him free Taco Bell for a year. So that's as they fun. oh a year? I thought they were going to say for life. No, just a year. Oh, okay. Well, get maybe your, he'll get your save fix. some packets and then. Yes, that's what he should do. It'll be like two years. Or do you think? Do you think he would like never want to eat them again? I think he would because he seemed in good spirits and like real oh, excited good. that that's how he was able to stay alive. Good. Oh, that's such a any, fun story. What would you live like? What's in your car that you would live off of? Oh, good question. Well, now thank God I have. Um, there's only one left though, Uh-oh. but I had a six pack of Insure in there hmm. um, because I was doing a terrible job of eating like three meals a day, so I had to like force myself to keep things in the car that keep me alive. Wow. Despite, even though I was not trapped or (laughs) for five days or anything, it's just regular (laughs) Sarah, access to all the food I want, but still don't manage to eat. Um, Do they, do those fill you up? 
No, I mean, they just, they make it so I'm not, like, hangry or not, like, yeah, you know, dying. Um, <laughs> and then I have, like, a, like, granola bars in my trunk. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. That'll help. Yeah. I'm trying I to think have, if I have I anything, think ketchup like, packets. weird. You have some ketchup packets? And salt packets, of oh, course. Oh, salt packets. Well, would that help or hurt? <laughs> I don't know. I, Susie's like, I was, salt hurts nothing. <laughs> I saw, oh, I was reading um, our, my brain candy book club pick for this month is a, uh, written by the BTK killer's daughter. So and cool. she was describing a time when they kind of got lost in the Grand Canyon. And I think at a certain point you can take those salt pills, uh-huh. which I suppose is sort of like Gatorade, you know? Oh yeah, they keep they hold on to the water. water. Maybe? Yeah, they yeah. keep you hydrated. Yeah, so that you seems retain like the counterintuitive. Water. It my- does. That's why it stru- stuck out to me when I read it. I was like, that is weird. But it makes sense because MSG is like this does the same thing. Oh right, but yeah, that's a weird phenomenon. Yeah, it is. I wonder why that is. I have no. I have no idea what goes on with that because it seems like salt makes you dehydrated, but then salt. I don't know. I have no idea. It's right, like sodium. It's I'm like, saying. I don't know. It's something like that. Who knows? <laughs> I always like when you're checked out, when you're like, I don't know, and I'm never going to know. No, I mean, or, well, <laughs> just, like, I don't have the information. So therefore, <laughs> um, another <laughs> doc that I watched was, it was just a short one. I think it was only 10, excuse me, or 15 minutes. And it was, um, period, end of. Sentence. Oh, I wanted to see that too. Tell me. It was good. It was really fun to watch because, you know, it was just a short film mm-hmm. and uh, it was describing, you know, basically the situation with getting your period in India and, how, you know, how stigmatized it still is and how mm-hmm. a lot of people end up dropping out of school as a result because, you know, they Can you even believe that? No, it's so sad. Yeah. And they don't have I mean, pads, talk about so. like those are the like that those are the kind of things like that privilege that you do need to think about of like, you know, education and yeah. even just like the bathroom. Right. Just having access to what you napkins or pads that you need. Um mm-hmm. just basic stuff and they'll like pick up a rag off the ground and use oh. that. And so they have oh to teach God. them like that's not uh clean and oh, you could God. get sick and all that stuff. So, oh man. But it's, it was hopeful because it was describing these women that are being hired locally to create their own pads through this very rudimentary machine that yeah. takes cotton and makes it into a thing that'll stick to your underwear. And it's going to empower women to change yes. the world on that oh. level because they can stay in school. And they asked the guys, do you know what a period is? And they were like, oh, it's... um." Isn't it like an illness that mostly affects <gasps> women? Oh, um, I, I, oh my God. They don't know. Oh my God. Because it's taboo. They're not allowed yeah. to talk about it. Yeah. And so. Oh, wow. They think of it as like a. That, that gives me like all these kind of uncomfortable feelings inside. I don't know why. Yeah. Even like the girls know that it has something to do with procreation, but they really don't know why it's happening or what to do about it. And you're basically like your life ends when that comes. Oh my God. I couldn't even imagine. Do you remember when you got your period? Yeah. What would, do you have a story about that? Mm, uh, 
Yeah. Was it like meh or was it like, did you look at I didn't celebrate. Was it like, the, I, I feel like it was kind of like the car accident where you just look and you're like, oh, this is going to be a hassle. <laughs> That's how I look at everything. Yeah. Well, he's like, oh, oh, great. Now I got to deal with this. <laughs> That's what it was like. How old were you when it happened? I think 13. Yeah. Yeah. And in my family, it was... Uh, you know, since it was just my mom and us during that time, she was all like very open about it and all about, you know, like feminine goddess energy. And so I remember my aunt was babysitting us. My mom was gone and I got my period and I came out of the room or the bathroom and I told my aunt or my, and my brother was there, Jordan, he was at the time. So I'm 13, 12, he was 10. And the, the, it, it had been, like what a period was and, and uh, you know, becoming a woman and all that was such an open conversation and something that was like special enough that my brother got a candle and lit a candle and said, congratulations, you're a woman today. No I way. swear. He like celebrated it and lit a candle for me. Is that not Sarah, the cutest? He I was mean, like 10. I think it's nice, but like my, because of the way we were brought up with so much shame and stuff. I just, it makes me cringe. Like, I just feel oh, upset. I, I, but like of that? For that? Yeah, about that? like I don't want to feel that way, but I do. Oh my gosh. And I look back and I'm like, how sweet <laughs> that it was like him, you know, just trying to connect. Oh, it and, is. And like, it is. And then think about how lucky any girl who's with him is going to be because he really understands that. And totally. It's so does wonderful. my husband. I mean, like, he has no problem, like, going to the store and getting whatever the heck I need and, like, talking about it or, you know. It's very progressive. Yeah. Oh, I mean, God. you got to be in touch with your body, that's for sure. And one way you can do that is through OpenFit, which is such a great yes. system for getting fit, losing weight, feeling strong, whatever your goal is with your Dancing. body. Dancing. Dancing like Sarah. Yeah, man. Shaking your booty. They have um, really cool programs. I mentioned before they have the one that gets you ready for a Tough Mudder, which is so cool. T minus 30. If you're thinking about maybe participating in one of those events, this is a great way to get ready for that. They have um, Extend Bar, which bar is so popular right now. Oh, I did that before my wedding and it made me so lean. That's how a lot of people describe it where it's like you feel strong but you're lean which is such a like that's kind of what every gal tends to want um but whatever it is that your goal is you can use open fit which is kind of like the netflix of workouts you go on there you pick what you want you can access it anytime from anywhere on your um tablet or your smartphone or your computer, whatever, and you can see the results. You can lose up to 15 pounds in just the first 30 days, flatten your abs, shape your body, and most importantly, feel great. OpenFit has changed the way I work out, which is from not working out at all (laughs) (laughs) to actually working out. Uh, With our code BRAINCANDY, you can join us on our fitness journey personalized for you. Again, use code BRAINCANDY and uh, start using OpenFit for your journey. 
right now you can uh, do the OpenFit 30-Day Challenge. Our listeners get a special extended 30-day free trial membership to OpenFit. So why not try that for 30 days where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days when you text Brain Candy to 303030. You get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information totally free. Again, just text Brain Candy to 303030. Okay. So, so yes. speaking of documentaries, did you see Free Solo? No, tell me. Oh my God. Is it so good? It's it's really good. I will also say I didn't know like it it was the most terrifying movie I've ever seen. That Landon really? and I both watched through the cracks of our fingers. <gasps> and th- I think it's one of those things so you know, if I if somebody watches like Law and Order Special Victims Unit, they can mm-hmm. almost kind of like s- distance themselves from the storylines because they're like, mm, this stuff doesn't happen. You know, it feels almost like far fetched or you know, wow, that's like extreme. But then if you work in that world or if you are familiar with you know like what happens in like sexual assaults and all that stuff, you're like, oh no, that's actually real and that stuff does happen. And mm. it's almost the same with this. I feel like if you don't and they, they kind of like mention that in the movie that if you're not somebody who really knows about climbing or the risks involved or whatever you watch and it's like whoa that's you know impressive but you know the, you don't really have that same like deep understanding of just how crazy and intense and real this is like i mean obviously it's real you're watching it but just like i mean me myself having like a, a you know bet like some climbing background and you know i've done that yeah. a little bit he yeah. would not call me a climber because he's like that and he's like unless i don't know whatever the, the guy in the, the movie, guy in the I, film yes yes um but he's like uh, a snob about it kind of yeah but also <laughs> on the spectrum definitely oh, okay okay absolutely okay. so um but uh like having had that experience myself and knowing what could go wrong and just how easy it is my toes were like I get this weird sensation in my feet where I feel like just the whole wor- wor- earth is going to slip out from under my feet and it makes like the bottom of my feet tingle and ah. my toes curl up. Yeah. And that was like the whole time watching the movie. <sighs> it was insane. So for people who don't know, um, the f- movie follows this climber named Alex. Oh, what the heck is his last name? Hud- uh, let me find his last name. Uh, Hud- uh, it starts with an H. Oh my God, you think, oh, Honold, H-O-N-N-O-L-D. And he is a free solo climber, which means he climbs without any ropes. And yeah, <clears throat> why does he do that? Oh my God, Suze. <laughs> so he, his, his mission in this uh, uh, film is to climb El Capitan, which is the largest oh, yeah. um, single slab you know, rock in yeah. the world, I think. It's 3,000 feet, this face. And it's never been free soloed before. It's it took I want to say like seven years, maybe more. Maybe it was like fourteen to just do the first route of this. You know, like with ropes with people mm. who were so just to find how to get up the mountain took years because it's really? so dif- because it's so difficult. <sighs> so he does. He's free soloed Half Dome and a lot of other um, you know big face climbs and he uh and a lot of those climbs you know it seems terrifying and it it absolutely is and the idea of climbing without ropes there are so many risks i mean like it's death is is almost inevitable but uh the the routes are are 
much, uh, you know, they're like beginner to, to, you know, intermediate, like all of the routes that he climbed on half dome, I could easily climb. Like I climb within that, that like level of climbing, but with a rope. So, you know, but and El Capitan, there's no way, no chance in all holy hell I could get up that because it's so <laughs> advanced and like not in a million years. Like there is no way. And so you watch him try, like make attempts and learn it. And, and you know, he, he's almost like a savant in how he remembers all the moves. And you see wow. these teeny tiny little finger holes and you see the spots where he like failed over and over and over. Oh mm. my God. It was so intense. But the best part of the movie was that for me was that it, it, while filming, he, or maybe like right before he meets this girl at a bookstore and who's like, you know, just a regular gal and he, you know, falls in love with her and they start their relationship, but he has a ton of like intimacy issues and, and you can just tell there's a whole bunch of weird stuff. Like she's got some story that I don't like, why is she like, did the idea of starting a relationship with somebody who is like, can die any second and it almost yeah. seemed like that was attractive to her in some way where yeah. she like wanted to be the girlfriend of the guy who it's you know, like maybe adventure died. by proxy yeah totally and it's just so fascinating to see like i i wanted to know so much about her i'm like what mm-hmm. is going on like you know <laughs> with that and why you're but what they find out so they uh uh like you know, what, what would you call them? Like neurologists get really interested in this guy and like how he's able to do this because you lo- you're like, this is insane. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that he has a very different approach than other free solo climbers where they almost have like a kind of like a death wish or they are oh, high yeah. risk takers. They, a lot of them don't live past the age of, yes, totally fatalistic. Like don't mm-hmm. live at, past the age of 40. And it goes through like all the different people who are free solo climbers that have died. And there's mm-hmm. one very famous climber named Timmy Caldwell that they have on there. And he's talking about how every single person that he knows who's a free soloist is now dead or free solo mm-hmm. climber is now dead. And he didn't want his friend to be, you know, the next one. So he's like helping him, you know, climb this route and learn this route since this guy, Timmy Caldwell is real, um, you know, experienced climber on El Capitan. Mm-hmm. And so these these neurologists are like, we got to find out what's going on in your brain. So they scan his brain and they, <clears throat> they put him through um, like a fear, like a, um, they flash images that are designed to trigger like a fear response. Yeah. And they show his brain scan compared to a normal brain. He has absolutely zero activation in the amygdala. What? That, I know. And anybody knows anything about brains, that is your fear center. That's what controls like all that. Well, what fear. does that mean about it? Does him? not light up. It sh- the re- the researchers were saying that it it would take so much stimuli, so much fear to even get a little bit of a uh, of And is that, that due to being desensitized or is that how he was born? Well, I have a feeling that it it was a li- it's a combination of both. Yeah, because yeah. they talk about how his father uh, had Asperger's. So yeah. there's a genetic component there too, because he has a lot of the similar traits and you can kind of see there's some odd kind of behavior with his mom and with dad and, um, you know, just in like personality kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, uh, so then his father passed away when he was 16 and I don't think he got any sort of emotional, like, like the, he did not process that. It was very yeah. clear that this family was not one that talked about emotion, that talked about anything like that. And mm. 
uh, yeah, so so I think it was a combination of both of those things where that is that doesn't even activate in him. It was like not like a little bit of activation, absolutely none in the brain scan. It was completely that makes me blank. disturbed. Right? That's what I said. I was like, I got like like it felt like all my blood left my body when I saw that brain scan. <laughs> I was like, what? Because and then I just started it's thinking, like he's like not that, human. Yes, and that's how we learn about how the brain works and we learn about, you know, brain injury and what certain areas, you know, I go back to like Phineas Gage and that the the guy from, I can't remember what year it was, but he had the railroad spike through his frontal lobe yeah. and he survived. And then we yeah. learned about the relationship between the frontal lobe and personality because he, he became a dickhead and like, you <laughs> yes. know, then ended up dying, but you learn like what parts you can live, all that. So any of these like odd, you know, people who have like an extreme or, or in one way or the other it's just fascinating there's so much like potential research on this guy like i feel like if i were a neuroscientist i'd just be like get in my office and you're not allowed to leave i need to experiment yeah. on you you know because what the heck and then i wonder are does, is this like a comp is there are there other parts of his brain that have now overcompensated that are like stronger like we need to explore the whole thing so yeah yeah Ooh, it's good one thing that's not risky is Going ahead with the stamps.com situation. It's no I mean, risk. All reward. On. Yeah. <laughs> All reward. I bet that guy's brain would light up at this suggestion. Yes, probably. Stamps.com <laughs> eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. They bring the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. If you have a small office and you're sending invoices or you're shipping out items, I'm always shipping books to everyone in the book club. Um, and you just use your computer to print off the uh, postage. You slap it on the package and then you put it in your mailbox. They come grab it and you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. How about that for a deal? Oh, for, and, wow, uh, that's good. It I didn't is. Know it was that and, big of a discount. Right now, our listeners get a special offer as well that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Brain Candy. That's Stamps.com. Enter Brain Candy. I love me a four-week trial, I'll tell you that. Yeah. I mean, it's free. Do it. <laughs> um, I love free stuff. So. speaking of the spectrum, yeah. I had read this article um, I have to look at what, where I found it, but it was so fascinating. It's about a company that designed their offices to be suitable to hire people on the spectrum that cool. worked with their, um, the things that they have difficulties with, whether it's bright lights or, mm -hmm. um, needing, you know, a daytime nap, even like some of them feel Who like doesn't they need, need a daytime nap. <laughs> I know that's not just for people in this spectrum. Yeah. Um, I'm not a napper, but I know a lot of people like really love naps. Um, but it was just really fascinating because I, like so many people, um, I'm kind of ignorant in the sense that I, I recognize that there are people on the spectrum, but I almost feel like they should adapt to the world that we've created, right? There's mm. this... No, I don't genuinely believe that, but that's right. like the instinct I have, which is like, mm -hmm. well, this is the world and you know, take it or leave it. And mm -hmm. this turns that on its head and says, no, we can create circumstances that allow them to thrive because they're very smart and capable and mm. bright, 
we just need to provide yeah. the context that allows them to thrive. And I thought, okay, I really should think about that. It's a great idea. Yeah. That makes me think of, um, you know, even what we were talking about before of like the crash test dummies and how, yeah. you know, the world is designed for this very particular, exactly. you know, like standard of a person yeah. and that's not really how it is. And it also makes me think of, I can't, I think it's in, somewhere in, uh, uh, like the Netherlands or, or some like Finland or Norway, something like that. But there's a town that is like caters to people with mental illness mm-hmm. and everything's kind of set up with everybody who lives there knows that everybody who lives there, like, uh, uh, you know, like they take these people into their homes and, you know, they, they kind of like integrate them into just like their the normal day-to-day stuff and and they just have like an understanding of this is how it is and we do things a little different in this town and and it's kind of like that and it's a very thriving like town because they recognize people's differences i guess you'd call what i'm describing as a form of ableism where oh yeah you know i'm i don't struggle with that so it doesn't occur to me Mm -hmm. that we should adapt um and so this was a great description of ways that we can accommodate without losing anything on our end. I mean, it's not even yeah. sacrifice. You just right. do things differently. Yeah. Um, and and I like, sent it... Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, I'm just... Yeah, totally. I agree with all that. <clears throat> my nephew has, uh, is on the spectrum and I sent it to my sister and it was interesting to hear about things that he struggles with. And I didn't know that people on the spectrum tend to have more gastrointestinal issues, Mm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. things like that, that you just really don't know unless you're one of those folks is in your life, but it's just interesting. interesting. Yeah. Mm. But it's good to talk about that and open that like, you know, oh, I know what I was going to say before is uh, 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 Target and some other clothing brands are coming out or have come out with clothing lines that are designed to be um like less irritating they don't have tags like things that they don't have the seams like my yes yes thank you that's the word i was looking for so it's like a lot of that kind of stuff where the clothes are designed for people who have sensory issues or any like concerns about like feel and touch and stuff like that like my little brother you know even though he doesn't have uh, uh autism but he uh he used to throw temper tantrums when he was little about his socks and like the feeling the little line in in the toe of his socks. Oh my gosh, we wouldn't be able to leave the house. And if those were available to my mom at the time, no problem. Yeah. And that's not unusual. That's sort of like, you know, the fabric bothering somebody, but like for some people it can really mess up their whole situation. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And can you I imagine went, if you were a parent like that and you in dealing with that and you, you know, you just give up after a while. You're like, okay, well, guess nobody's wearing socks in this house anymore because <laughs> well, we got to get to school. I think as a parent too, the temptation is to be like, oh, get over it. Right. I mean, that's like my oh, motto. Such a good point, Suze. <laughs> but, yep. you know, it could be a lot more than just a, a oh, whiny kid. Yeah. And then you just, yeah, you say just get over it and then it, those, those feelings don't go away. So they just come out in other ways with the temper tantrums and with the yelling and with the whatever it is because you're not addressing the issues of like sensory overload. Yeah. And if somebody isn't being heard, they're going to find a oh. way to make sure they are, yes. even if it's destructive behavior. 
it, th- that's our basic survival instinct. Right. Take hmm. care of my needs in any way, that, especially if you're a child. Whatever I have to do. Yes. I invited you last week to, or this week, to see um, Hannah Gadsby in L.A. Oh, my God. How did it go? It was great. Um, it was at the Hayworth Theater, and they have a series called Dynasty Typewriter, and it's um, very intimate. There was probably only maybe 50 people there. Oh, wow. Because she's preparing for her tour, and I think, you know, they basically introduced it saying, this is a work in progress, like keep an open mm-hmm. mind. So she's like trying out material. Mm-hmm. And she, I, the reason I bring it up is because she was diagnosed on the spectrum. And, you know, it's more unusual for women and girls yeah. to be diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably why it took a bit longer for her to mm-hmm. find out. Um, and she said the reason she found out is because she would do her routine or her act. And then mm-hmm. she talked to people afterwards and other people on the spectrum would be like, do you think maybe you're on the spectrum? <laughs> Oh, well, that's, she, I like that kind of normalizing, that it's people who are have that yeah. same, you know, lifestyle. And she was like, I didn't even know girls stuff. could really have it, and I didn't think I did, but then I was diagnosed, and she said that's what made her write Nanette, because she was grappling with identity oh, and all this stuff. Man, I shouldn't it's say really lifestyle, because it's not like it's a choice, but I was trying to think of another word other than problem, like that you have this... Yeah, sometimes you, you might know. say condition or... Yeah, but condition. That, it, it's yeah, all still stigmatized kind of language. Yeah. yeah. There's got to be another word for it. Like, I bet they have one and we just don't know it. Yeah, I need to learn what that word is. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Tag us in yeah, that information. Yeah, 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 definitely. We have cool. a guest today. Ooh, yay. And Dane Hucklebridge is his name, and he wrote a book called No Beast, So Fierce, so Fierce The Terrifying True Story of the... Champawat tiger, the deadliest animal in history. And it's a true story about a tiger that terrorized a town in India for... I've heard of this. Oh, my God. The tiger killed hundreds of people. Dude. Just one tiger. Wow. Got a taste for human flesh and was like, that's delicious. It's it's so so interesting. And... Here's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, first of all, it's basically like reading a serial killer book when the oh. serial killer is a tiger. Oh, my. I already love this. I don't, yes. Why do I love this so much? I feel like. <laughs> and it provides context. So it's like a page turner because you're like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Are they going to catch it? What's, how's, they, how's it going to end? But then there's also a sense of like, here's why this is happening. Environmental mm. issues, yeah. ecological decline. Um, the tiger had been injured at a young age, so it only had like one of its major fang thingies, oh. um, incisor teeth or whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't able to catch food as easily. Like normally tigers are not interested in human beings. And so yeah. for them to be interested, you have to explore what happened and what did we create that made this Kind of the nightmare. same you would as a serial killer. Yes. Ooh, it's so good. So um, people should read Dane Hucklebridge's book, No Beast So Fierce, especially if you're interested in like why things happen in the world, but then you don't want it to be boring. <laughs> yeah. And so Which that's is like what the everybody. book is. So cool. um, Dane is a fun person to talk to. I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Welcome to the show, Dane Hucklebridge. Hello, Dane. Thank you for coming on Brain Candy Podcast. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am so in love with your book. I 
am so impressed with it, and I wondered how it feels for you right now that it's out in the world and people are consuming it. Is it stressful or exciting or what? I I think it's mostly exciting, and yeah. it's uh, you know it was really an interesting project for me, and and I've I've always found with books kind of the experience you have writing them tends to come across reading as well, and for me you know of, of the various books I've written, I think it was just the most kind of academically and intellectually intriguing and engaging just the subject matter is so fascinating you know tigers which are incredible animals and the idea of sort of all these different causes you know man-made and otherwise that that kind of provoked this one tiger to to begin eating people which is sort of horrific but also you know definitely something that captures the attention i guess so yeah i think i think i'm mostly excited because i I hope that 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 sort of the the interest i took that i you know this sort of new subject that i that I got really interested in and, and started engaging with that people feel the same way reading it. So I'm hoping that that's happening and I'll be excited if it does. Well, it was surprising to me that you would expect the author of a book like this to be just, I don't know, a tiger expert to begin with. And you're kind of like a jack of all trades. You don't fit into the a writing box. So why the heck did you tackle this subject? Well, I guess I would answer that in two ways. One is I I do have, you know, I guess ultimately what the one sort of current that I I think runs, I hope runs through, once runs through, you know, whatever I write is just this desire to tell a good story. And for me, that's the true if it's, you know, if it's a novel or if it's a, you know, a history of whiskey or (laughs) various things I've did. I I mean, if you're looking for a common thread, it's I I like to tell a good story. And uh, I hope, you know, that's ultimately what I try to accomplish. And for, you know, for me, this was this was a great story. It was just a compelling story that was both kind of interesting, very interesting and intriguing, just the nature of it. And also, I think it kind of had a, an important message that's relevant today about kind of the environment and wildlife and, and what can happen when, when humans sort of take advantage or abuse their relationship with the wild world, with the, you know, with the, with the environment and with, you know, the, with the world, the sort of ecosystems around them. So, I mean, I think those are the two reasons. And obviously, apex predators, tigers in particular, are just fascinating creatures. So it's easy to to become interested in them and and hopefully convey that enthusiasm. Well, you did, and it was such a page-turner. And the reader is consuming this story about essentially a serial killer that happens to be a tiger. Um, And I wondered, as the writer, how you approach a character that is not a human and make it come alive the way you did. How does that work for you? Well, I I think in this case, given the story, because one thing I really didn't want to do was necessarily portray the the tiger as a villain because Mm -hmm. it's a tiger. It's a wild animal. You know, it's not Jack the Ripper or something like that. And so I wanted to be sure to, you know, to not portray it in that light, partially because, you know, animals like tigers have been villainized so much in the past very unfairly and I, and I also wanted to make it very clear that that this was essentially a man-made disaster that sort of that was that's the central theory of the book I guess you could say that this seeming freak of nature this yeah. tiger just starts eating people by the hundreds it was actually a man-made disaster is because of because of humans that this tiger sort of changed because normal wild healthy tigers are incredibly shy animals you know you, you never see them they want nothing to do with people and and something happened you know something so through the sort of ecological balance off kilter that that instead of being afraid of people and hiding out deep in the forest this tiger is actually seeking them out and eating them. so I, I wanted to you know really really show that and i think 
Yeah, and I think just the way I described the tiger, tiger in the book, I tried to, I tried to make it clear that in some ways, even though the tiger did unfortunately eat a large number of people between roughly 1900 and 1907, that in many ways the tiger was the victim here. Yes, you know? it was. It was the you know it was sort of tortured into this predicament through a, an injury to its teeth and through its habitat being destroyed and sort of being driven. You know, it's sort of it's it's. It's it's has not been treated well by human beings. So I, I wanted to convey that in the in the description of the tiger as well. Yeah, you did such a good job of unpacking these complicated ideas of colonialism and you know ecosystems and the ways that consumerism or whatever else industrialization had an impact on the world. And I, it was just amazing as a reader to see how you made it all work and still be interesting because it's informative but it's still this incredible story was that difficult for you or did it come easily i i guess it's always a challenge yeah. but ultimately it's sort of the challenge that i like because i you know one of the things i always looking back kind of resented was the way in school when you studied history and there are some very good history teachers but i remember you know i remember history i was never really liking it yeah. i don't think it was till kind of college that i started to get a little more into it but uh yeah i mean because it, because it was made i mean history really should be interesting it's you know there, there's no end to the you know the great stories and the the, it, the way it connects to our modern day the way we think things like that and it's such you know you can do such interesting things and such captivating things with history and you know i just think many people don't take advantage of that whether it's a, a history teacher or a writer or whatever so for me you know i i mean i find this stuff captivating i mean reading reading firsthand accounts of tiger hunts during you know during the 18th century things like that it's you know for me it, it's very interesting it's it's you know it's it's the type of stuff that i can't put down and i, and I guess what i'm writing i at least i at least make an effort to kind of convey that same interest and enthusiasm and to present to present the facts and the stories in a way that that does make them entertaining to read i, I don't know if i always succeed but ultimately you know that's a, what's the point of telling a story if it's not you know a story people want to hear was and, uh, so that's what i aim for i guess was there something that during your research surprised you about the the man-eater <laughs> was there or tigers in general I, there, there was a number of things that surprised me. I would say one of the most surprising was, but it, I mean, surprising sort of looking back, I realized how own, how my own opinions had been so biased in some ways against prevailing ideas or Western culture, whatever you want to think. But when I, when I went to India and Nepal to, you know, to learn more about the relationship with local people there and, the, and tigers. And I spent some time with the Taru community in Nepal and in Kuman with the people there. But particularly in Nepal where, you know, I was staying in a community right on the edge of a, of a big tiger reserve. And I'd read books, you know, books about these accounts of how occasionally man-eating tigers would come out of the forest and attack villagers and, you know, how some sort of Western scientist or Western educated scientist was needed to, you know, to step in and keep the angry villagers from killing all the tigers. And I, I was sort of expecting that type of scenario, you know, where the, and, and, and honestly, the total opposite was true. I mean, when I, when I was talking with the Taro, these are people who've lived alongside tigers for thousands of years. You know, they don't have any problems with the tigers. <laughs> they, they get, they get along, they, you know, they, they have no problems. And one thing that was interesting is they actually liked tigers. They considered it good luck to see a tiger. Well, because, well, because, because essentially there's a very small chance of, of possibly getting attacked by a tiger, which occasionally happened, but was very rare versus the very real possibility that 
if the tigers aren't there, the population of wild pigs and deer explodes and they eat all your crops and your family goes hungry. And for them, like it was much more realistic problem you know, immediate problem to make sure their crops were intact to feed their family than worrying about this very hypothetical tiger attack, which is extremely rare. Well, they sound like they are, you know, more pragmatic than a lot of Americans who obsess about serial killers, as I mentioned, rather than, you know, climate change or (laughs) things that actually can affect you. Um, So it sounds like they have a, a better relationship with the world around them than Western cultures do sometimes. Well, well, my experience with the Taru was just that they, you know, it was almost out of just natural and out of necessity that they'd been living alongside the forest for, you know, the, the forest was, was, was how they sustained their livelihood. You know, they do, they do do farming, but they've always hunted, fished, gathered vegetables, gathered food from their animals from the forest. And so it was just, you know, it was a, just a... You know, it was a natural resource, essentially. And mm-hmm. and they, my, my experience was that they were very aware of the fact that it was, you know, it was a renewable natural resource if you acted as a proper custodian and didn't abuse it. So, I mean, that's when you talk about deforestation and habitat destruction, things like that. It wasn't, it wasn't the Taru who, you know, the indigenous people there who'd been living for thousands of years and, and you're sort of you're living like responsibly alongside the forest. They do do things like they burn grass at times and they, you know, do do engage in some agriculture, but they understood that it was about balance. The same way tigers keep the deer and boar populations in balance is about living alongside the forest was this kind of balance. And they, it certainly, I didn't get the impression that they were the ones who were, you know, killing all the animals off illegally or chopping down all the timber or anything like that. It was, you know, there was, that was more kind of government corruption and things like that, that were, right. you know, that was responsible. There were some superstitions, I guess that you'd call them, um, that people had about tigers that affected how they viewed the victims of tiger attacks. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, so again, this is book. The book takes place, you know, roughly between 1900 and 1907. So it's it's a little hard to know exactly how people, you know, exactly how people viewed tigers, how you know local populations would have viewed tiger attacks, whatever. I do know that um, in present day, that in some places, like I believe the Sunderbans, there is this kind of negative connotation with with someone who's attacked by a tiger. Because it's, it's, you know, it's sometimes believed that it's sort of a spiritual retribution in a way, that this person must have done something, you know, just sort of anger the, the deities or the spirits or whatever that caused the tiger attack. And sometimes that kind of, you know, I, I guess you'd almost kind of bad luck, but I don't know what the word is, that it, it can sort of be, be spread to other people around them. So, you know, if, if someone's incurring the wrath of a tiger, sometimes in, you know, in, in, some, in some parts of India and Nepal, there's this idea that, you know, this person has, has perhaps done something wrong and you kind of don't want to associate with them <laughs> because you don't want to get mixed in. I will say, though, I, I've read about that in certain parts of India. When I was in Nepal, I spoke quite a bit with local gurus, like the, the sort of spiritual leaders of the community, who, you know, just deal with everything from illness and, you know, illness, crop failures, animal attacks. You know, they kind of do, a big part of their duty, though, is is they do this sort of regular weekly ceremony, the puja, where they do sacrifices and put out uh, rakshi liquor and things like that as a sort of offering to the spirits. And they 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 worship kind of a mixture of some Hindu gods, but also also these sort of, 
you know, Taru spirits that live in the forest and, and things like that. And, you know, and they kind of had this belief that as long as you respected the, the spirits and the forest and you did your, your ceremonies properly and lived, you know, properly and didn't commit sins or whatever, that, you know, you didn't have anything to worry about. But if you were doing something wrong, if you were not, like, properly honoring the spirits or gods, if you were desecrating them or the forest in some way, that, you know, a, a tiger tech could result. And they even said that sometimes there would be warnings. They said if you found uh, whiskers, tiger whiskers on the ground around the village, that that was a warning that somebody was doing something wrong. Right. And the stakes are high. You don't want to mess up yeah. your whole system. Yeah. Yeah. So they – so, but I didn't really detect – so they did have this kind of notion amongst, you know, traditional – you know, the people who practice the kind of traditional religion, this idea in Taru communities and villages that a – that a tiger attack could be kind of almost like a form of divine punishment. But I didn't, in that case, I asked them, I said, you know, would this affect how you would view the family or the victim afterwards? Would you still perform the funerary rites? And they, and they all said that, you know, that wasn't a problem, that they didn't really hold it against. There wasn't any sort of curse, you might say, or anything like that for victims of their families, that they were still kind of, you know, they would, they would do whatever they could to try to figure out the cause of this imbalance. Oh, wow. but, you know, but there wasn't any sort of like animosity towards them afterwards. So do you think that they saw this, um, you know, hundreds of deaths as being a bigger community problem in that respect? That it's hard to say because in some regards, because I believe, you know, based on my research, I think the tiger probably started, became a, a man eater, probably in the Tarai, the lowlands of Western Nepal, which would have been populated by Taru people. And then at some point, because when it was sort of driven out of its habitat, then there weren't enough people there, frankly, because it's kind of sparsely habitat, you know, sparsely populated. And it started going up into the hills to kind of hunt people. Then it, it crossed into a different group that's more Pahari, the mm. sort of group that you found in, find in the hills of Nepal and also in uh, Kumaon across the border in India. As to, it's hard to say exactly how the community viewed it. I know in, because a lot of it comes through the lens of Jim Corbett, who is, who is the hunter who eventually went after the tiger. And he, you know, seeing through, even though he was intimately familiar with, you know, local beliefs and language and religion, he, he was still looking at it through a Western lens. But he did at least mention at the, towards the end of the hunt that there was a sort of belief among at least some of them that it was almost a, I think the word, word was shaitan or something like that, like a, a demon or a devil or something like that, that this tiger was kind of possessed in some way or abnormal. So I think if nothing else, there was at least an understanding in these communities that, that this was not a normal tiger and it almost had, you know, supernatural abilities to it, that it was, you know, there was something else. And, you, you know, that's a common theme. When you look in 18th century France, there's a famous wolf called the Beast of the Gévaudan. And you see the same thing. These French peasants in the in the French villages, you know, were convinced it was kind of a devil or sent by God as punishment or something like that. You know, they didn't view it as just an ordinary wolf. So I think in, you know, in communities where these incredible acts of predation take place, it's, it's not uncommon to sort of see it as either some form of divine punishment or some sort of supernatural characteristic just because it defies belief, I guess, that it can do this much damage. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because if you didn't know the context for why the tiger was um, being so aggressive, you would think it was um, yeah. some sort of supervillain. Um, yeah. Let's talk about Jim Corbett, though, because that guy is a colorful character. What do you think of him? He, he's a, you know, he is a captivating character. He's a little enigmatic. Yeah. He is, 
he he's full of when you look at his history you know he's sort of full of conflicts in a way too because on the one hand he was a man who became famous for hunting <laughs> and eating tigers but on the other hand he became you know one of the real pioneers of tiger conservation and you can even argue that there's still wild tigers in India today you know, largely because of some of his early efforts. He really became an advocate for wild tigers and, you know, did a lot to help save them from extinction, including the establishment of, like, reserves, like the Corbett, you know, Jim Corbett National Park, which was named after him because of his sort of conservationist efforts. So he, he's an interesting character, and he's a little, in some ways, hard to get to know. I've, I've read hmm. almost all of his writings and read books about him and, you know, read some of his letters and interviews. And he's, yeah, he's... He's an interesting character, and he, like one of the things I find interesting about him in particular is that he was definitely ahead of his time in many ways, but also was of his time. So he wasn't, you know, he he understood, like I said, you know, he understood that tigers were crucial to ecosystems and they weren't these sort of bloodthirsty killers, and that they, you know, he really admired tigers and thought they were beautiful. But ironically, he did he did hunt tigers, usually not for fun, usually out of necessity because they were eating people, but, you know, it was sort of this thing that he became very good at. And, yeah, he, there's a number of these contradictions when you, you know, when you learn about him in regards to his... And some of it, I think, is just because of... He had this sort of ambiguous position. He was, <laughs> you know, of Irish descent, but he was born in, you know, in British India, in Kumaon, and that was sort of a strange position to be because the, you know, the domiciled colonists, the, the people of British or European descent who were born in India, were always, they weren't, they kind of weren't totally accepted by the, you know, by the elite from Britain, the colonial elite, but they also, you know, obviously weren't, didn't totally fit in with the, with the local population, and they're always, always kind of occupied this nebulous region, and I think his life is kind of like that. He, he's, you know, there, there's always, you know, just full of these conflicts, these ambiguities, and uh, yeah, he's an interesting character. He's, he's definitely captivating. It seems like it served him well, though, because he could get along and and navigate high society, but then go into a community and relate to them as well. So I'm sure that lent itself to a higher success in the weird field that he was in. Yes, I mean, as as someone whose job it was to essentially, eventually, it became his job to hunt man-eating tigers and leopards that were that were preying on people. He, I mean, he did the fact that he. You know, he could move seamlessly with kind of the colonial government officials and socialize with them. And, you know, he knew he knew the kind of upper elite of that society and the, you know, the echelons of government very well. And they trusted him to do this. But at the same time, he could, you know, he could go to some village and have tea with a headman and, you know, <laughs> speak in Kumaoni or... I guess probably was speaking Kumani most time. Speaking Kumani, and and you know they they would trust him enough to kind of take him into the forest, show him where things happened, share information. He understood you know like the the way they perceived wildlife and you know what you know the importance of of religion and beliefs and things like that. So yeah, I, I guess again this sort of ambiguity of his own identity, the fact that he could sort of go fairly seamlessly between these two different worlds did did help him quite a bit and. and in what he was trying to do and eventually even became somewhat famous for it. But I think it also made him, I got this sense reading it, it kind of made him a bit of an outsider. You know, I was, you know, you kind of got this feeling that he was known and loved, people liked him, but he was kind of, you know, there's something almost like the last of his kind or something. He was always <laughs> kind of a little bit on his own. He never, he never married or had a family. He didn't, I mean, he did have friends, but, but you oh, didn't, you man. didn't get, you kind of got the sense that there was this side to him that was, uh, you know, that was a little bit, 
a little bit of a loner maybe or a little bit, you know, there just weren't that many people like him. He, he didn't completely fit in anywhere, I guess you could say. What do you think made him so good at hunting? I think, honestly, one of the things is just that he really grew up sort of just immersed in the the forests of of mm. India of Kuman. He you know at a very young age was was hunting and camping frequently. He would you know go hunting for food even. At it you know when when he was a boy he uh, he there's Kanwar Singh who was kind of a local hunter you know maybe possibly poacher I guess you could say. Mm. But you know he was you know an indigenous hunter from the region who you know Corbett's father died at a young age so he was kind of fatherless. And it's a little bit touching when you read it because this Kanwar Singh, it seems like he kind of took Jim Corbett under his wing in a way and sort of, you know, took him out and showed him, taught him how to hunt properly and taught him the ways of the forest and things like that. And I think more than anything, it's that just that he was, he had sort of an intimacy and familiarity with the forest that in many ways was more like uh, an indigenous or local hunter than your, your average European colonist. And he could kind of he could read, you know, read the forest like a book. He could tell what was happening around him by the ways and the way animals were reacting or their cries. He could, you know, track animals very well in a way that, you know, few other people could and, you know, tell you all sorts of information just from a single paw print or something like that. So he just, you know, he had from a very early age, he just grew up kind of immersed in this environment. And I think, you know, I think that gave him this kind of almost sixth sense about the forest that he could, you know, he was just exceptionally good at navigating it, finding animals, determining their paths, things like that. Things are different now in terms of the views towards tigers, at least insofar as there are more people trying to save them, I suppose. Um, so what is the status of tiger hunting now? Is this still happening? No, I, as far as I know, every country that has wild tigers in it, I believe hunting tigers is illegal. I, I can't think of any place where it's still legal. The only exceptions is when, for example, this just happened recently in India this past fall, when a tiger does turn to man-eating, that at a certain point the you know the oh, government right. give the command to actually try to hunt and stop the tiger. And, and in those cases, is that tiger in the similar situation where he he or she is wounded or the same type of uh, scenario? Sure, oftentimes yes. And, yeah. Uh, you know, these this just this last uh, this last incident in India, I think it was in November that most of it occurred, where just over a dozen people, I think maybe thirteen people, were killed. It, it's almost exactly like the yeah. same situation. It just wasn't allowed to go on for as long. So it was over the course of a few months instead of, you know, seven, eight, nine years, however long the Champawat tiger was actually at loose. But, um, yeah, it's usually either because the tiger is injured in some way and or because just a lack of habitat and prey species for it to feed on. I mean, it's usually out of some form of desperation that, a, you know, that a tiger starts attacking people. You know, these, these days they don't. It's hard for tigers to get enough territory to kind of live the way they're supposed right. to. They're very territorial animals, and they need a lot of space. And that's with the growing population, growing agriculture, things like that. Less and less forest. That's something that's increasingly difficult. Well, the, I, that's one of the reasons why I really love the book. Aside from just being a page turner and so fascinating, it's just good to remind people about the stakes of, you know, when you deforest or when. Uh, the ecosystem changes. So I, I just loved how you n- intertwined all of the themes that you did. Um, also, how awesome is that image of that 
friggin' tiger's taxidermy head. Yes. I can't yes. get over it. Yeah, you get, there is a there is a picture of, and I don't believe the skin or the head still exists. I I, I think it's been lost to the ages. I How could is be that proven possible? Wrong. Uh, it's just because after you know Jim Corbett had a number of skins and trophies and things like that from the from the man eaters he hunted, and the a few were given away to friends, but I think the bulk of them were auctioned off after his death. In mm-hmm. in Kenya, I believe, because eventually ended up in Kenya after he left India, and I think most of them were auctioned off, and the the proceeds were given to charity, if I remember correctly. So it's just you know they kind of just were scattered to the four winds, and I, a few of them have survived, but not very many. And I, I have a hunch that probably happened with the Champawat tiger. I mean, it may exist somewhere. I, I haven't been able to locate it, and I've asked you know a number of kind of Jim Corbett experts <laughs> who really get into this stuff if they had any idea, and they they, they didn't know. either. So, well, it's an amazing photo, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and the photo you can see, I mean, the essentially the, the main reason this tiger began hunting humans was because a poacher at some point shot out two of its teeth. And in the picture, it's a little hard to see, but you can see half of one tooth is missing yeah. and the entire other tooth is, is totally gone. And that, that was the injury to its jaw that, that effectively turned it into a man-eater because it couldn't bring down the, you know, the big, the large wild boars and stags and things like that it would normally hunt in the forest. I also wanted to ask you, because um, I saw that your novel Castle of Water was optioned for a film, and I'm just wondering if you feel fancy. If, pardon? <laughs> if you feel uh, fancy, like you're now like Mr. Hollywood, how does it feel? Uh, I, no, I, I don't, it's exciting, and I hope it's, it's so cool. you know, I, I, I can't give away too much, but it seems like it seems like things are progressing. I, I, it's, it's being worked on and, and developed. You're so, so humble. I, I, I would be shouting it from rooftops. I, well, I, I hope it comes to fruition. That would definitely be neat. But uh, fancy? No, I, I, I don't. <laughs> uh, it's very neat, though. Like it's it, it's definitely a neat thing. I, I I still couldn't imagine what it'd be like to see something I you know something I wrote yes. become become a movie. But I, I have to imagine it'd be kind of kind of an exciting cool. experience. Yeah. The last question I have for you is what we ask of everybody, which is, <laughs> what do you? Well, I don't know if you have a car. You live in Paris, but what do you keep in the trunk of your car if you have a car? I don't have a car. Right. Do you have a backpack or anything? Uh, I have a briefcase I sometimes take with me. What do you I, keep I, in there? I could tell you what's appears. I have a very small umbrella. Okay. Uh, actually, I've got it right here. Let me see what I've yeah, got. Yeah, open that baby up. I don't know how interesting it'll be, though. Let me see. <laughs> a lot of people have empty trunks, so there's It's just no full pressure. of candy. No, wow, I'm so excited. I'm just kidding. It's not just full. I wish. No, usually, usually I keep a little umbrella. I keep a little tote bag because sometimes here in Paris there's lots of neat little markets. Yes. So, but they don't usually give you bags the way they do in the U.S. So right. if you go to the market, you're grabbing cheese or wine or oh, what have man. you. It's nice to have a little tote bag. So I've got that. I've got an extra charger for my phone because I always forget that and, and miss smart. out on stuff. Yeah. I've got some pens and pencils in case I need to write anything. And I, I don't think it's there. Occasionally, I, I don't do it much anymore, but sometimes I keep a, a tobacco pipe in there every once in a while to, to puff on. But I, I, haven't been, I haven't been smoking pipes lately. So That's that, so professorial. Uh, I, I like the way they smell, I guess. I don't know. But it, it's kind of tough. It's, it's not very convenient to do because it's... I know, in my in my current apartment, I'm not I'm not supposed to smoke a pipe. <laughs> it sort of takes like an hour to do. So if you're outside in the cold, it's not really fun to stand around. Is that around. true? It takes an hour. 
Yeah, so I don't, I've kind of, I, I guess now my pipe collection is mostly aesthetic. I don't smoke them as much as I used to. But. Oh my gosh, I love this. This is a really good uh, answer. Most people, I, like I said, they have empty trunks and I like this. This is good. Well, I don't even have a car, so uh, <laughs> this happens. It happens a lot when I interview people in New York. They don't have cars as well, so we have to improvise. Yeah, but you're off well, the hook. You're you. I'm just so happy that your your book is out and people get to read it. I know our listeners are going to love it. So congratulations to you and thanks for indulging my questions. Sure, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Thank you, and I will let you know when it's up. And I hope you have a lovely evening because it's what the heck time is it there? Eight. Yeah, it's eight thirty right Good now. Good lord, you got to hit the sheets. Um, Well, thank you for um, also being willing to talk so late. I'm sure that's no fun, but thank you. Oh, no problem at all. It's a pleasure. Congrats, Dane. Talk soon. Okay. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Wave Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows, including the Brain Candy Podcast, I Don't Get It, Babes and Babies, Coffee Convos, and Let's Talk About It.